This weekend, I was watching the Ryder Cup. The Ryder Cup is a golf competition between the best players in the United States um, competing against the best players in Europe. And it's just always fun to watch, always something I enjoy. And I was, I was watching this golfing event, and these guys are just incredible, hitting these wonderful golf shots. I was really enjoying it. But you know what watching the Ryder Cup made me want to do? It made me want to play golf. I thought, I want to go do that. It's going to look really bad when I do it, but I want to go play golf. That's what I wanted to do. It, it, it made me want to stop being a, a spectator and start actually playing the game. Well, we are embarking this morning on a journey through the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a record of how God worked through the early church after the time of Christ on this earth. And it's a remarkable story. But if we study the book of Acts and we remain spectators, maybe we're missing the point as to why God inspired this book. I submit to you that God inspired this book we call Acts so that we could learn some things from the early church, but also that we might be inspired to get in the game. That we might be inspired to be a part of what God is doing by building his kingdom in this world. So hopefully as we begin this study and and, and our appetites will be whetted for uh, what is coming, we will be inspired by the early church, we'll we'll learn from the early church, but we want to get in the game. It'll move us to want to be a part of what God is doing. So keeping that in mind, turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We are beginning our study this morning. We're going to go line by line, verse by verse, through this wonderful narrative of the early church. Now, just to save you the the trouble, uh, Acts is 28 chapters, so it's going to take us a while. I preached through Matthew years ago, and there were 28 chapters in Matthew. It took us three years, so just get comfortable. Just get comfortable. I'm not in a hurry. You shouldn't be in a hurry. We're just going to study and learn because it is rich. Love the book of Acts. I promise you, you'll be encouraged uh, by this book. Acts chapter 1, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. I want to ask you this morning, if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. The Bible says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father, would you make us a Jesus people? Lord, a church that really believes that Jesus is everything. That Jesus is all to us. Give us a deep love and reverence for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Make us a Jesus people. And Father, I pray that you'd make us a Bible people. 
God, that we would hunger for your word. That we would, like it says in 1 Peter, like, like babes, long for the pure milk of the word. God, use this study to give us a deepening love and appreciation for the truths of Scripture. And Father, would you make us a gospel people? We have good news to share. Good news of a Savior that died for the sins of the world. Good news that our Savior has risen from the grave. We have good news that sinners can be forgiven and be reconciled to a holy God because of what Jesus did. Lord, that is good news. Make us a gospel people, a people that love to worship, that love to proclaim that that good news. We'll thank you and praise you for that grace. Lord, meet with us in this moment. Establish my footsteps in your word, and we ask and pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As I said, the book of Acts is 28 chapters, and it is historical narrative. And there are two basic ways you can outline this book or, or think through the organization of this book. First of all, we can outline this book around places, around places. If you look there in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, look what it says. It says that, Jesus speaking, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, speaking to his disciples, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. So after Jesus Christ died on the cross, uh, after he rose from the grave, before he ascended back to the right hand of the Father, he gave his disciples their marching orders, their great commission, and he told them what was going to happen. Now, this verse, verse uh, 8 of chapter 1, is, is a pattern for ministry. He wanted them to preach the gospel where they were in Jerusalem and the surrounding countryside of Judea, but he wanted the gospel to expand into cross-cultural settings like Samaria, and he wanted the gospel to go to the very ends of the earth. So it's a pattern uh, for it was a pattern for the church to follow, but it was also a prophecy. Because we're going to see that's exactly what happened in the books of, book of Acts. We're going to see the gospel goes to Jerusalem. And the gospel goes to Judea. And the gospel goes to Samaria. And the gospel goes to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so that's how the book of Acts unfolds. So we're just going to kind of watch the gospel go to these different areas, just like it is mentioned here in verse 8. So we can outline this book around places. We can also, if this helps you, outline this book around people. Around people. Uh, The first part of the book shows us the church taking the gospel to the Jews and Samaritans under Peter's leadership. Peter is the, 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 the central figure in the first part of the book of Acts. You might say Acts chapter 1 through 8 and Acts chapters 10 through 12 uh, feature the leadership of Peter, how God used Peter. But then in chapter 9 and then chapters 13 through 28, there's a shift that takes place and we see that the church takes the gospel to the Gentiles primarily under Paul's leadership. He's the central character in the the second part of the book of Acts. So you can kind of organize like that. First part, Peter. Second part, Paul. Now, that's a little simplistic because there are other uh, people featured throughout the book, but that's a a way to think through how this narrative unfolds. But what I want to do this morning is I want to look at the first three verses of the book of Acts and 
introduce this book to you. And my goal is, again, to whet your appetite so that you'll be excited about coming back next week and seeing what God has to say to us through this study. So let me give you five truths about Acts. Five truths about Acts that will whet our appetite. Number one, and this is so important. If you don't get this, you won't understand Acts. Acts is a sequel. Acts is a sequel. Look what the Bible says there in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, who's the I? He says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Well, this is uh, Luke. Luke was a Gentile physician. You can read about him in Colossians chapter 4, verses 11 and 14, to see that he was a doctor and he was a Gentile. And uh, church tradition holds that Luke wrote the book of Acts, and, and we see some clues in the text because near the latter part of Paul's missionary journeys, we see that someone was there for those journeys that uses the, the, the word we. We went here. We went there. And as you look at who all is mentioned, the one that's not mentioned is Luke because he's using the word we. He was there. And so Luke wrote the book of Acts. But this is not the first book that he wrote found in the Bible. Look what it says in verse 1. In the first book... In the first book, O Theophilus. Now, what's the first book? What's the the first book that he wrote? Well, he wrote the book that bears his name, the Gospel according to Luke. And there's a connection with this name, Theophilus. Turn back with me to Luke chapter 1. Right before Acts is John, and right before John is Luke. Luke chapter 1. Verse 1, Luke again writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent, what's the name there? Theophilus, same guy, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been So Luke says to Theophilus, I've been compiling some information so I can write you an orderly account of the life of Jesus Christ, the works of Jesus Christ, the ministry of Jesus Christ, what Jesus Christ did on this earth. And that's what Luke is all about. It's an account for Theophilus. Now, people say, well, who in the world was Theophilus? We don't know for sure. His name means lover of God, or it could mean friend of God. And he could have been uh, he could have been anyone. Uh, some scholars believe that he was a person seeking truth about Christianity, and Luke wrote him the, the book of Luke so that he would become a follower of Jesus Christ. He also could have been a patron of Luke. He could have been one that supported Luke's missionary activity and supported his writing and publication. And because this man, Theophilus, was supporting him, he's writing an account to share with him what Jesus Christ has done and enacts what the church had done. Uh, some think that Theophilus was a code word for Christians. It was just kind of a general word for all lovers of God. And it was a way for him to write this letter without identifying anyone specific, and they might get in trouble in the Roman Empire where Christians were being persecuted. So some think Theophilus was just kind of a, a code word for all uh, believers. Uh, I believe that Theophilus was a real person, because look what it says there in verse 3 of Luke chapter, uh, Luke chapter 1. 
He says, I'm writing an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. He uses the, the, the adjective most excellent, which means that Theophilus is probably a man of some standing. And he's writing to him uh, about the works of Jesus Christ. And in the book of Acts, he's writing about the work of the church so that he might know about Jesus and might know about the work of God in the world. Was he a believer that needed to be encouraged? Was he an unbelieving seeker that needed to be saved? We don't know. But we know that Luke wanted to give him the book of Luke and the book of Acts. He wanted to give him this information. And so we see back in Acts chapter 1, when when he says in the first book, he's speaking of the gospel of Luke. Now here's what you need to understand about this, why this is so important. The account of the life and ministry of Jesus comes before the account of the church. Let me say it again. The account of the life and ministry of Jesus comes before the account of the church. Before there could be a vibrant church, there had to be a victorious Savior, right? Before there could be a church that could do the work of God, there had to be uh, Jesus who had to finish his redemptive activity. And so the, the, the gospel of Luke, the work of Jesus Christ, had to happen for the church to be vibrant and successful in the work of God. And so back in Acts chapter 1, Luke is going to summarize what he wrote in the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. And so I want to give you just a summary of the life and ministry of Jesus that Luke records in that gospel. First of all, Luke records that Jesus came to earth. As a matter of fact, Luke gives us the longest narrative of the birth of Jesus Christ. And look what he says there in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book of Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. There was a time where Jesus began to do things, began to teach. It was when he left the splendor and glory of heaven and came to this earth. Now, you need to understand that Jesus Christ is eternal. Jesus Christ has always existed. There's never been a time when Jesus Christ has not existed. He is fully God and has existed before the foundations of the world, right? When he was born of the Virgin Mary, that was not the beginning of the existence of Jesus Christ. That was simply Jesus leaving heaven to come to earth and take on humanity for us. And so he says there's a time he began to do some things. He began to teach. It speaks of Jesus coming to this earth to be a savior for you and a savior for me. So he came to earth. Number two, he taught. He taught Luke's account and the the other gospels are full of the tremendous or uh, authoritative teachings of Jesus Christ. And you can't read the gospels without being just moved by the clarity and the power of the teaching of Jesus Christ. He taught a large part of his ministry. Third, he, he suffered and died. Look what it says in verse 1. In the first book of Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. We talked about his teaching, but it says there, things he began to do. What did he do? Well, look what it says in verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering. After his suffering. What is Luke referring to when he mentions the suffering of Jesus Christ? He's referring to Jesus Christ laying down his life. You know that Jesus Christ uh, allowed himself to be betrayed. 
He allowed himself to be arrested. He allowed himself to be mocked and maligned. He allowed Roman soldiers to pull the beard out of his face. He allowed Roman soldiers to strike him in the face. He allowed them to to place a crown of thorns upon his head. He allowed them to to whip him with a cat of nine tails and lay his back open. He allowed them to place a, a, a cruel wooden beam on his back. He allowed them to nail him to the cross on Golgotha. He allowed them to crucify him from nine in the morning to three in the afternoon, Jesus Christ laid down his life. He suffered. He said, wait, why would he do that? The Bible says that Jesus did that because of his love for us. The Bible says God demonstrates his love for us, proves his love for us, Romans 5, 8, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, you may be here this morning and you may be wondering if God really loves you. The cross declares that he does. He died for your sins. He died for my sins. So he suffered and died. Also, he rose from the dead. Look in verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering. So after Jesus Christ suffered, after he died on the cross, he rose from the grave. He was risen from the dead, and he presented himself alive to them. He rose from the grave. He defeated death itself. He proved that he was who he said he was and that he could do what he said he could do. He rose from the grave. Aren't you glad? But next, he appeared to his followers. This is important. It says there in verse 3, he presented himself alive to them, to his followers. And so after Jesus Christ rose from the dead, Jesus Christ spent some time on this earth with his followers. Now it says in verse 3 that he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. That word proofs is a, is a really fascinating word in the original language in which this book was written. It was originally written in Greek. And this word is tekmerios and, and it means uh, a proof in the sense of demonstrative proof. In, in that day and time when, when people would talk about logic, they would use this word to speak of, of, of proof beyond argument. In the word of medicine, this word was used of a sure symptom. A doctor would walk in and say, this is what you have, and that, that, that's a sure thing. It's tekmerios. This is what you have. It was a, a sure symptom of, of what was troubling a person. In the legal world, this word was used as a proof from which there was no getting away. In other words, this word was used to speak of, listen, irrefutable and indisputable evidence. And it says here that Jesus Christ gave them many proofs. Listen, irrefutable evidence that he really was risen from the dead. And so he proved to them that he was alive. Look what it says in verse 3. It says, he presented himself alive by many proofs, appearing to them. That word appearing, this is an interesting word, It is not the word that speaks of appearing in a vision. This doesn't speak of visions or hallucinations or or dreams. This word appearing is the word for someone is really there in your presence. That's the word that he uses here. And notice that it says in verse 3 that he appeared to them during 40 days. 40 days, Jesus was on this earth after his resurrection, before he went back to heaven with his disciples. Now, if Jesus was only on the earth one day, and then he went back to heaven, the disciples could say, you know what? You know, I think he was alive from the dead, but maybe I was just emotional. 
Maybe it was just an emotional moment and I was having a, a vision or hallucination or maybe it was a dream. I don't know. It was just one day. It happened so quick. I don't really remember. But Jesus wasn't on the earth one day after his resurrection. He was on the earth 40 days. I just read Luke in my quiet time. Luke 24, it says, he ate with them. and said, touch, touch my hands and my feet. I mean, he was with them. And so that when he went back to heaven, there was indisputable, irrefutable evidence that Jesus Christ really did rise from the grave. He rose from the dead bodily. And that makes all the difference. And so he appeared to his followers. But here's the next thing. He issued marching orders. He had some things to say to his followers. Look what it says in Acts chapter 1 verse 2. He says, he began to do and teach some things until the day he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So one of the reasons Jesus was on this earth for 40 days after his resurrection, before he went back to heaven is so that his followers, listen, could be crystal clear about what they were supposed to do. And he gives them the Great Commission. Make disciples of all the nations. Share my gospel so people will become followers of me. And when they become followers of me, baptize them as a visible identification with the church. And then teach them all that I've commanded in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You'll be my witnesses, Judea. Jerusalem, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth, Christ wanted them to know they were to be about expanding God's kingdom by proclaiming the gospel. So he issued marching orders. And then last, he went back to heaven. Look in verse 2. It says that until the day when he was taken up, after he had given these commands. So after he gave these commands to the disciples, he was taken back up into heaven. He ascended. We'll talk about that some more in the coming weeks. He ascended back to the Father. He's at the right hand of God. That is the work of Jesus Christ. And so here Luke is summarizing for Theophilus all that he wrote in the book of Luke. Just reminding him of what the gospel of Luke was all about. Now, here's the point for all of us in this room. All that Jesus did, which we will call the finished work of Christ... The finished work of Christ gives us good news to share. The fact that he came, the fact that he died, the fact that he rose from the dead, the fact that he appeared to his followers, the fact that he gave us marching orders, the fact that he ascended back to heaven gives us something good to share because we get to tell people all that Jesus did, right? That's what we're called to do, to to share with folks all that Jesus Christ did on this earth. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, here's a message that is to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Why? Because something happened in this person, Jesus, that affects every single individual, whoever has been or ever shall be in this world of time. Now, if Christianity were merely a philosophy or a political idea, no one would be bound to believe it. There are rival schools of philosophy, there are rival teachings and theories, and one person believes this and another that. But what we are facing here is not what you and I believe, but facts. And the facts are about this person called Jesus. What he did and what he said and the meaning of his person. So Luke is reminding Theophilus of the facts of the life and the ministry and the finished work of Jesus Christ, which is the foundation for the book of Acts. Now, Acts is a sequel. 
To understand, you've got to understand the book of Luke, right? That Jesus did some things, so the church here has something to, to, to talk about, has a message, a good news message to proclaim. If Jesus didn't die and rise from the dead, the church would have nothing to say, right? It's a sequel. It's a sequel. Now, here's the deal. Often, sequels don't deliver, do they? There'll be a good movie, you know? You just love the movie, and the sequel comes out, and you want to go see the sequel because you love the first movie so much, and you go to the sequel, and it just disappoints, right? just falls flat. Listen, this sequel does not disappoint. It is a powerful sequel to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ as we see Jesus continuing to work through his church. Acts is a sequel. Number two. Number two. Acts is a kingdom book. Acts is a kingdom book. Look what he says in verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about, let's read this together, the kingdom of God. Let's try it again because you... He, listen, it says that during 40 days he was with them and speaking about, let's say it together, the kingdom of God. That was the, the central theme of his message. Jesus Christ was speaking of the kingdom of God. Now he said, what is meant by this phrase, the kingdom of God? It's really pretty simple. When we speak of the kingdom, we are speaking of the sovereign rule of God. Right now, the kingdom is spiritual. Jesus reigns through the hearts of his people, the hearts of believers. But one day, Jesus Christ will come in and, and reign physically over all the earth as, as the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of Christ. One day, every knee will bow to King Jesus and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so that's the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God. Right now, he rules and reigns through the hearts of believers, so if you're a believer, you're part of the kingdom. Jesus is your king. You're a loyal subject of the kingdom. And the kingdom grows, the kingdom expands as more and more people bow their heart to King Jesus. Right? That's what's meant by the kingdom of God. Now, here's what you need to understand about the kingdom. If you look in your notes, the kingdom was Jesus' message in Judea. During his time on this earth, it says in Luke 4, 43 through 44, he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Notice that he says the good news of the kingdom. In other words, it's good news that even though we are far from God because of our sin, our sins can be forgiven and we can be brought into the kingdom of God. That's good news, right? And he preached that good news in Judea. Second, the kingdom, of Je- the kingdom was Jesus' message in Galilee. In Galilee. Matthew 4, 23, it says, He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Next, the kingdom was to be the substance of his disciples' message. Luke 9, 1 and 2. He called the twelve together, and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Next, the kingdom was to be the priority of his followers' lives. Luke nine fifty seven through 62. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and, and, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But it's for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, the kingdom of God was to be the central priority of his followers' lives. So, it should be no surprise for us that Acts begins with a mention of the kingdom. Verse 3. He reminds Theophilus that Jesus was speaking about the kingdom of God. But here's the deal. Also, Acts ends with Paul proclaiming the kingdom in prison. Turn to Acts chapter 28. Last chapter. Acts chapter 28. We're going to peek at the end of the story. Acts chapter 28, verse 30. Paul here is in prison in Rome. And it says, he lived there. 28 verse 30, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming what? The kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so the book of Acts, watch this, begins by talking about the kingdom. The end of Acts is about the kingdom. The the central theme of Jesus' preaching was The kingdom. So maybe, maybe we should give some attention to the kingdom. You think? It's a pretty big deal. That's why our, our vision statement is this. We want to be a church that expands his kingdom across the street and around the world. It's all about the kingdom. I love this, this quote from Kendall Easley. The Lord God, through his Christ, is graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people for their joy and for his own glory. That's what God is doing in this world. He's he's expanding his kingdom. And it's a great privilege to be a part of his kingdom. So I was watching the Ryder Cup. You know who I was cheering for? USA. Right? USA. I don't know any of those golfers personally, but I, I, I'm, I'm a U.S. citizen. I was cheering for the U.S. It don't matter what they're competing in. If the USA is in it, I'm cheering for the USA, right? Because I'm a citizen of the USA, but I have a greater citizenship. My citizenship ultimately is a heavenly citizenship. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. And if that's true, I'm very interested in the kingdom of God. I'm all about the kingdom of God because I'm a citizen here. And I want to see it grow and expand and people brought into that kingdom. And I I want people to know the king personally the way I do. How about you? Acts is a kingdom book. We're going to see that as we study our way through it. Number three, very quickly, Acts is a historical account of the early church. Acts is a historical account of the early church. That's what it's about. It's an account of the early church. Now listen, this is an important statement. Acts is descriptive before it is prescriptive. Acts is descriptive before it's prescriptive. In other words, Acts is not necessarily telling us what we should do and how we should do it. First of all, it's describing simply what happened. And just because it happens in the book of Acts doesn't mean we ought to do it necessarily. They say, well, how do we know what we should emulate in the book of Acts and what we should do differently? Well, the overall context of the Bible helps us to understand what we are to emulate and what we are to avoid when studying the early church. For example, we're going to see a little bit later in chapter 1 
that the disciples wanted to replace Judas. They needed a twelfth apostle, and Judas was dead. And so we see them identify some candidates, and then they get lots, kind of modern day or ancient equivalent to dice, and they cast those lots to see who the next apostle should be. So let's just say that, that uh, we're having a deacon election. We identify some names, and we bring them up and assign them a number, and we roll some dice. See who's in, who's out. Is that what we do? No. That's what they did. And we'll talk about why they did that a little bit, le- a little bit later in the series. And, and, but, but that's not how we do things today. That's not how we discern God's will today. That was, in that day and time, that's not for us. So it, so it described what they did, not necessarily what we should do. You understand? Let me give you another example. Ananias and Sapphira lied to God about the amount of, of money they gave to the early church. They sold some land and they, they held on to some for themselves, some money, and they made it look like they gave all their money for the land. And God struck them both dead. So should we be praying that people who are dishonest about their finances should be struck dead when they walk in the doors of this church? You know, dear Lord, strike them dead. That's what happened in Acts 5. I want to see some folks die this morning. Right? Is that how we should be? No. Things are different now, okay? Things are different now. There's a lesson to learn from Ananias and Sapphira, but we handle issues like that differently now because the rest of the Bible tells us how. And so Acts is is descriptive before it's prescriptive. That's something important to learn. But here's the fourth thing. Acts does offer a pattern for the church today to follow. There's much for us to emulate in the book of Acts. There's much for us to learn. We can learn much from the early church's priorities, what they are all about, their boldness in preaching the gospel even in the face of persecution, their love for each other, their resolve in the face of of persecution and turmoil, their resolve to move forward with the gospel. We can learn a lot from the book of Acts. So we're going to study the book of Acts and the things that we need to emulate, we're going to learn from and emulate, right? We're going to apply to the life of our church. For example, we see that in the book of Acts chapter 2, that they met together in a large worship service in the temple, and then they met in homes in small groups. I think we should emulate that. I think we should get together and worship everyone together, but then we should get in small groups so we can minister to each other and get to know each other, right? We can't get to know each other in this big room. I mean, we can say hi and shake hands, but we're not going to really get to know each other. But hey, if we'll come and worship with one spirit, one heart, excited about our one Savior, guess what? We can go into small groups, connect groups is what we call them, and we can get to know each other and learn God's word together and minister to one another and pray for each other and live life together. We can, we can emulate how the, they did it in the book of Acts. And so there's much that we're going to learn that we're going to pattern our church after as we see it unfold in the book of Acts. Here's the fifth thing and the last so Wade, why should I be excited about this study? Why, sh- why should I come back next week and bring somebody with me? Well, Acts is a, is a sequel that absolutely delivers, amen? Acts is a kingdom book. Acts is a historical account of the early church. Acts offers a pattern for the church today to follow, but fifth and last, Acts offers us a vision of our potential. That's why I'm so excited about this study, because Acts gives us a a glimpse into what can happen 
through a spirit-filled body of believers that really love Jesus and really want to proclaim the gospel to the lost. It gives us an insight. Now listen, and I think about this all the time, and you probably do as well. The church today has the same Lord as the church in the book of Acts in the first century, right? Same Lord. We have the same message. 2,000 years, the gospel has not changed. We have the same Holy Spirit. The third person of the Godhead lives in us, just like He lived in them. He indwells us and empowers us for service. We have the same Holy Spirit. Listen, we have the same commission. The orders have not changed in 2,000 years. The early church was to make disciples of all the nations. The church today is to make disciples of all the nations, right? The same commission. So the church today has the same Lord, same message, same Holy Spirit, same commission. Here's the big question. Why are we not having the same impact? Let that question just just rest on you for a moment. We have the same resources that the early church had, and really more than they had. Why are we not having the same impact? Hopefully, as we work our way through Acts, we'll answer that question. And we'll allow the Lord to do in and through us what He did in and through the early church. The Bible says in Acts that the, 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 the people of God in that day and time, the missionaries sent out by the church, listen, were turning the world upside down. Wouldn't you love to be a church, listen, that turns the world upside down for the glory of God? Acts is going to give us a glimpse into our potential. Because I don't see any reason, listen, same Lord, same Holy Spirit, same message, same commitment. I don't see any reason that we can't have that same kind of impact if we'll be about the things of God. Kent Hughes writes, The study of Acts is particularly important to us because it teaches us how to experience a stimulating, exciting life, how to make our lives count. Acts will encourage us not to just go through the motions and, and just, you know, just go through the, the church motions and just religious, religion as usual. But Acts will call us to a spirit-filled, dynamic, Christ-centered, gospel-proclaiming, devil-defying life. Don't you want that? Don't you want that? Acts gives us this vision of our potential as a church. I hope we'll catch catch it and allow God to do it in, in our midst as we surrender all to his will and his way. So here's the big idea. I say, well, what's the big idea? That, what's, the, what's the central message of this sermon, Wade? Is we kinda, what, what, do we, what do you want us to walk away with? Here it is. The book of Acts is instructional and, everyone say and, and inspirational for the church today as we seek to expand his kingdom. If we read this book and study this book and we just remain as spectators to the work of God, we're missing the point of the book. God wants us to learn. He wants us to be inspired. So we'll get out of our seats and into the game. 
for the glory of God.